We're in Psalm 110 tonight. It is, the title is Sit at My Right Hand. It is a messianic psalm. That is a psalm about the Messiah, often quoted in the New Testament as we'll dig in tonight. Psalm 110, sit at my right hand. Before you totally sit and relax, would you stand if you're physically able to stand for the reading of God's word? Seven verses, a psalm of David. Psalm 110 reads, the Lord says to my Lord, Psalm 110, sit at my right hand until I make thine enemies a footstool for thy feet. The Lord will stretch forth thy strong scepter from Zion, saying, rule in the midst of thine enemies. Thy people will volunteer freely in the day of thy power, verse 3, in holy array from the womb of the dawn, thy youth are to thee as the dew. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind, Thou art a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at thy right hand. He will shatter kings in the day of his wrath. He will judge among the nations. He will fill them with corpses. He will shatter the chief men over a broad country. He will drink from the brook by the wayside. Therefore, he will lift up his head. You may be seated. Father, thank you for your living word. Thank you for this majestic messianic psalm, a royal psalm of David, pointing to the ultimate son of David, the Messiah, Jesus Christ. And Lord, uh, every time we worship and we get to get into the word of God, it does feel like, uh, I think we could describe it this way, you give us a glimpse into the throne room, and we're going to get a very special glimpse into the triune nature of our God, the Godhead the Messiah before he was born in Bethlehem, his exalted status at the right hand of God the Father. So many amazing doctrines in this little psalm. And Lord, we need your help. So would you help us to understand it, to apply it, to open our uh, eyes to marvelous things in your word, to know in whom it is that we have trusted and that he will finish what he started. And more than that, he even has a ministry to us today, a high priestly ministry ever living to intercede for your people. We're so grateful. We love you, and we pray that you, your will will be done tonight. In Jesus' name, if you agree, would you say amen. amen. Sit at my right hand, Psalm 110. A royal psalm points to the kingship and reign of Jesus if you're a note taker, the main ideas are Jesus' exaltation, his deity, and his current high priestly ministry. You'll notice the psalm opens with the Lord. And we've already talked about this a number of times. Uh, the capital letters there, or the capital L with small caps, is YHWH, right? So there we have the divine name. So you could always uh, render that something like Yahweh. So Yahweh says to my Lord. Notice that David calls the second uh, person, if you will, I'll put person in quotes, my Lord. Now you'll notice that that Lord is a capital L and then lowercase letters, so that is Adonai. So you have Yahweh, the Lord, Yahweh says to my Lord, Adonai, what does he say? Sit at my right hand until I make thine enemies a footstool for thy feet. You'll notice if you have a New American Standard, the rendering of that other person being addressed there, and I put person in quotes, 
is capitalized. So you can see the idea of deity. So the author of Psalm 110 is, is David. Um, he opens the psalm with this incredible insight into what we would call a conversation in the throne room of God or a conversation between persons of the Godhead. This is an interesting look at the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, eternal God, uh, three persons, yet one God, much of it hard for us to fathom and completely understand. But all those who looked at this psalm, including modern-day scholars and Jewish rabbis, saw this as messianic. And whenever you hear that, we're just simply talking about uh, it's clearly about the Messiah. This is a prophecy, if you will. And remember that the bulk of the Psalms are written about 1,000 A.D. And so you're talking about 1,000 years before Jesus is born in Bethlehem. You have this uh, treatment of this divine one being addressed by Yahweh and being called Adonai. It is interesting to note that the author of the Psalms, King David, calls the second Lord in Psalm 110 verse 1, my Lord, just like he would say my shepherd or the Lord is my light. This one is my Lord. And so that is interesting too, because oftentimes when God is addressed, he's not only addressed as Yahweh, but God is also addressed as Adonai or Lord. And you could render that uh, master uh, Adon is the root idea of Lord, and it means the first judge. So one thing that we have learned as we've talked about this word Adonai in the Hebrew picture language is that it means the first judge. And here's how you can think about it. When you call Jesus your Lord, he's the first one you run everything by. He's the first one to judge what you should do and what you shouldn't do. Lord you know, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I say? So that's the idea of Adonai. That's that second word. Spurgeon comments, and his comments are so insightful. He says, in the beginning was the word, and from old there was a mysterious fellowship between the Father and his Son, Jesus Christ, concerning his people and the great contest on their behalf between himself and the powers of evil. How condescending on Jehovah's part to permit a mortal ear to hear a human and a human pen to record his secret converse with his co-equal son. How great should we prize the revelation of his private and solemn discourse with the son, herein made public for the refreshing of his people. And he says, <clears throat> I, Lord, what is man that thou should thus impart such secrets unto him, close quote. And so Spurgeon says we're getting a behind-the-scenes uh, uh, listening uh, earshot, if you will, into a conversation between the Father and the Son. Pretty mysterious, pretty incredible, pretty amazing. And something that Jesus actually commented on in three of the Gospels, in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, he refers to this psalm, and I want to take you to one of those accounts. It's in the Gospel of Mark, so you're going to have to hold your place. We're going to turn a little bit tonight to other books of the Bible, so hold your place in Psalm 110. Turn over to Mark's Gospel, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. 
Jesus was questioned a lot by the religious leaders of his day, as you know, if you study the Gospels. And um, he had a question of his own in Mark's Gospel. We're in chapter 12, and we're going to pick it up at verse 35. But they, would, they asked him a lot of questions, and a lot of the questions that they had were about his authority. Who are you to do such things? Who are you to say such things? What right do you have to come into the temple and claim that it's your father's house? And on and on they went. They shot many questions. Questions came from the Pharisees and the Sadducees and so forth. And here's what the record in uh, Mark's gospel says. Pick it up in Mark 12. Look at verse 35. Jesus answering began to say as he taught in the temple. How is it that the scribes, that's the ones that would write down Holy Scripture or copy it, say that the Christ is the son of David? Now, Jesus has a question of his own. Why do the scribes describe the Christ, that's the anointed one, that's the Messiah, as the son of David? I have a question for you. What do you think about the question? For David himself said in the Holy Spirit, that's an interesting confirmation that scripture is inspired by the Spirit of God. The Lord said to my Lord, now we have Psalm 110 and Jesus is quoting it. Sit at my right hand until I put thine enemies beneath thy feet. David himself calls him Lord. So in in what sense is he his son And the great crowd enjoyed listening to him. Now, Jesus had a question. If the Messiah is the son of David, and you guys know that when Jesus is ministering during his earthly ministry, oftentimes he was called son of David, son of David. Now, you might ask, well, what does that mean? Well, son of David means that Jesus was from the line of David. He was a descendant of David. But remember, David lived a thousand years before Jesus Christ was born on the earth. And he was a descendant of David. We find out that from the book of Acts or the book of Romans and other places. So in what sense then could he be David's Lord? Because David was a king. David was older. He was the older descendant, if you will. So how could David call a future descendant his Lord? The question, do you have an answer? And the scribes and the Pharisees, you know, they often had to huddle up. What do you think? I don't know. What are we going to tell? I don't know. If we say this, if we say that, ready, break. They come out of the huddle often saying, we don't know. We don't know the answer to that question. And Jesus says, well, then neither will I tell you about what authority I do these things. <laughs> you can't answer my question. I'm not going to answer your question, right? But it is an interesting question, isn't it? Because the scribes said that the Messiah in Psalm 110, clearly believed to be messianic, was the son of David, but he was also called David's Lord. Who is that individual then? Who is that personage? Now, this is important because the question of Jesus' identity is at the root of the Gospels, right? It's at the root of really all of our lives. Jesus will say, as he's heading into Jerusalem, the final leg of his earthly ministry, who do men say that I am? Well, some say that you're this, and some say that you're that. And then remember, he famously says, but who do you say that I am? And scholars have pointed out that the acid test of all of our spirituality, if I can put it that way, is ultimately how we answer that question. Who is 
Jesus? Is he simply just a prophet? Is he a good moral teacher that arrived on the scene and taught people how to love one another? Or did he really, was he really born into this world as God in human flesh, as Emmanuel, God with us? Is he the descendant of David, and yet is he also God the Son? Does he have a dual nature? Is he both man and God? This is the question that people wrestle with. And, you know, uh, many religions of the world will acknowledge that Jesus Christ lived and died and had good things to say and so forth. But Jesus makes the claim, who do you say that I am, or the question, and the question is obviously of extreme importance. It will determine, I will argue, your destiny. Where you are headed is how you answer that question. Now, I want to show you uh, some other places where this is mentioned. So turn to the book of Hebrews for a second, and we'll, we'll come back to the psalm in a moment. But Hebrews also deals with this psalm, Psalm 110, an oft-quoted psalm in our Bibles. You gotta, you're going to have to turn to the, near the back of your New Testament. Psalm 13, I'm sorry, Hebrews 13 says these words. It says he, and it's speaking here of Jesus, is the radiance of his glory. Now notice there you have two uh, persons once again. He, that's the son, is the radiance of his, the father's glory. And he is the exact, Hebrews 1.3, representation of his nature. And he upholds all things by the word of his power. When he had made purification of sins, what did he do? He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. I want you to turn to Hebrews chapter 10. Another treatment of this, this is often connected to Jesus' redemptive payment for our sins. This is Hebrews 10.10. And again, the writer is speaking of Jesus who uh, came in a body, verse 7. He came in the scroll of the book uh, to do God's will. And then down to verse 10, for the sake of time, it says, by this Will we have been sanctified? By this will we have been sanctified, Hebrews 10.10, through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And every priest, that is the human priest or the line of Aaron, stands daily ministering and offering time after time the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But he, by contrast, the ultimate priest, having offered one sacrifice for sins for how long? For all time, what did he do? He sat down at the right hand of God or God the Father, waiting from that time onward until, and this is again language from Psalm 110, until his enemies be made a footstool for his feet. For by one offering, he has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. So in the Christian church, when we celebrate our redemption, we, seg- we celebrate a singular payment made in history that is effectual, efficient, for all time, all believers, in all times, all generations, the blood of Jesus Christ washes away my sin. In 2021, it's true. It was true for somebody that lived in the 1100s or the 500s or before Christ. They still looked to that same future coming Messiah. And then over to Hebrews 12, which is a uh, familiar passage to us, it talks about 
running the race effectively and taking off the things, getting rid of the things that uh, entangle us, and then to the for our purpose tonight, fixing our eyes on Jesus, Hebrews 12:2, who's the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame. And what did he do? He sat down at the right hand of the throne of God in the tabernacle and in the, fut- in the, in the temple that, became, that came after that tent, that temporary structure. There was no place for the priest to sit down because your job as a priest was really never done. Because people sin, how many times? <laughs> over and over and over and again. And so you have to make sacrifice and sacrifice. And you had the major holidays, but you also had to sacrifice in between. And your life as a priest was a, a work of mediation for the people, but it involved bloody sacrifices over and over and over again. In fact, the temple was really largely about that, to deal with sin, to cover sin. But the problem is, that the blood of bulls and goats can never completely take away our sin, right? And so Jesus came to deal with our sin once and for all. If then you have been raised up with Christ, Colossians 3, 1, keep seeking the things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on the things of the earth. For you've died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, is revealed, and you also will, will be revealed with him in glory. I want to show you one more. It's in the book of Acts. So it's Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts. Peter, preaching on the day of Pentecost, is also going to bring up Psalm 110. And let me just show you the heart of this sermon as well. So look at Acts 2. Look at verse 32. Acts 2, 32. Peter preaching says, Jesus... God raised up again, this Jesus God raised up again, to which we are all witnesses, Acts 2.33. Therefore, being, having been exalted to the right hand of God, the place of honor and power and authority, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured forth that, this which you both see and hear. For it was not David who ascended into heaven, but he himself says, the Lord said to my Lord, now here we have it again, sit at my right hand until I make thine enemies a footstool for thy feet. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know for certain, you don't have to guess about it, that God has made him both Lord, Kyrios, and Christ, that's Christos, that's Messiah, this Jesus whom you crucified. He is Lord. He's the Lord of Psalm 110. He's the Lord of all the earth. Now when they heard this, They were pierced to the heart, and they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brethren, what should we do? If we crucified the Holy One of God, what do we do now? And Peter said to them, repent, and let each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. In 1 Corinthians 15, 25 through 27, write it down for your notes. It says, he must reign until... He has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy that will be abolished or vanquished is death itself. For he has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when he says all things are put in subjection, it is evident that he's expected to put all things in subjection to him. And then in Hebrews 1.13, this is a little bit more, but to which of the angels did he ever say, sit at my right hand till I make... 
thine enemies a footstool for thy feet. To which of the angels did God the Father ever say that? The answer is none. Jesus is no angel. He is not Michael the archangel. He is not the first and greatest creation of God because it goes on to say in the book of Hebrews, let all the angels, what? Worship him. Now, all the angels aren't going to worship another angel because God is not going to break his own law because all worship belongs only to the true God. We are warned in Scripture not to worship any other God. God will not share his glory with another. And yet, he tells all the angels to worship his Son, which inevitably means that Jesus Christ is God because only God receives worship. In the book of Revelation, an angel, what, no less than two times says, don't do that, get up, don't worship me, worship God. Angels, at least good angels, are not to receive worship. Worship belongs to God alone. And when God the Father says, let all the angels worship my son, this is Hebrews chapter one, it is clear that Jesus is God the son. Everybody with me? Now this is important. Because understanding who Jesus is is at the heart of the Christian faith, and it's at the heart of our salvation. And I'm not telling you that it is an easy endeavor uh, to understand all of these deep things, but I'm telling you that it is something that we all should know. And unfortunately, there's a lot of Christians who don't know these truths. And so they can't give a solid defense for the deity of Christ and sometimes they feel like they've been turned into a doctrinal pretzel with just a few verses from a Jehovah's Witness at their door or the like. That should not be the case, brethren. We should know the word of God. And of course, it's gonna take some time for you to wrestle with these things, but this is what the scripture teaches. Now, back to Psalm 110. There's a lot more I could show you, but let's just return to the psalm. And you can see how it's been quoted now several times. Jesus comments on it. You have the writer of Hebrews, you have several, uh, you know, you have it mentioned in the Gospels, you have it in Colossians, I didn't show you, but it's also in Ephesians. And so the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand. This is the place of honor. This is the indication that when the work, the, the um, salvation work of the Messiah is accomplished, he is able to sit down, which implies that the work is done. I'll give you an example. Have you ever had a long day of doing, let's say, yard work? And uh, let's say you mowed your lawns all day long, and you worked, and you worked, and you worked, and you worked, and you got it done, and you poured a glass of iced tea, and you sat down, and you're like, it's finished. Oh, yeah. Now, if it's the summertime, you realize that grass is going to grow, and next week, you're going to have to get up, and hopefully you have children that you can delegate these kinds of chores to, uh, even to get you the remote control. Whatever really you need, you should be taking adva full advantage of that. But you know the grass is going to go. Now, it's going to be a little slower in the winter and the fall, right? But it feels good to get something done or come to the end of the day and just, just kind of sit and relax and say, and feel good about that work that's been accomplished. This is the picture that we have in Jesus sitting down. At the right hand. He, he's invited by God the Father to sit down. And this is uh, in keeping with Jesus' statement at the cross. It is finished, right? It's been paid in full. Salvation has been paid for in full. There's nothing. No, not 
anything that you can add to the perfect sacrifice of Jesus Christ. It is finished. Paid in full. Stop trying to add to it. But I don't know. Do I, do I have maybe one half of 1% I need to add to it? Nope. Nothing you're going to add to it. You're just going to say thank you and receive it as a gift. And then what you do with it is obviously very important. We don't use grace as an excuse for sin. But it motivates us, obviously, to live for the Lord. And so the father invites the son, sit down. Until when? Until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. And I think what we have here is an idea of a future time. This psalm is going to move in that direction. The Lord, Psalm 110, verse 2, will stretch forth thy strong scepter from Zion. Another name often for Jerusalem. Saying rule the father's still talking to the son, rule in the midst of thine enemies. Now, the scepter is something that's mentioned in Psalm chapter 2. Uh, we can also see this idea in Psalm 47. And the scepter is the king's, you know, implement. Remember in the book of Esther when she takes that risk to go and talk to the king. If he extended the scepter to her, she was okay. It was like, you know, she had his uh, permission, if you will, or she was not going to be killed. And so the scepter is, is uh, echoing from um, Genesis 49.10. The scepter shall not depart from Judah. Jesus is the lion of the tribe of Judah. He rules and he reigns. He co-rules with his father. But in fact, the Bible says in John chapter 5 that all judgment has been given to who? To the son. Jesus is the judge. And here we have the triune nature of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, who co are co-creators, if you will, or created the world, uh, will judge the world, etc. The Lord will stretch forth thy strong scepter. You can also write down Hebrews 1.8 from Zion. And he says, rule, rule in the midst of thine enemies. Psalm 47, 1 through 3 says, O clap your hands, all peoples, shout to God with the voice of joy. For the Lord Most High is to be feared, a great king over all the earth. He subdues peoples under us and nations under our feet. One day, even Satan's head will be crushed. Romans 16, I think it's verse 20, under our feet. Amen? Amen. All the enemies. This is depicted in Revelation 19 when Jesus rides on that white horse and he devastates all his enemies. He de devastates the Antichrist with the breath of his mouth and the brightness of his coming. This psalm depicts Jesus as the king, but he's also the high priest, and we're going to get to that in a moment. He is the king priest. He serves in both offices. Shepherd thy people with thy scepter, the flock of thy possession. This is Micah 7:14, which dwells by itself in the woodland in the midst of a fruitful field. Let them feed in Bashan and Gilead as in the days of old. As in the days when you came out from the land of Egypt, I will show you miracles. Nations will see and be ashamed of all their might. They will put their hand on their mouth. Their ears will be deaf. They will lick the dust like a serpent. This is judgment language, like reptiles of the earth. They will come trembling out of their fortress. To the Lord our God, they will come in dread and they will be afraid before thee. Who is like who is a God like thee who pardons iniquity and passes over the rebellious act of the remnant of his possession? 
He does not retain his anger forever because he, God, delights in hesed or unchanging love. And in that day, as we point to the, I believe, the day of the Lord, verse 3 of Psalm 110 says, Thy people will volunteer freely. Some of you need to mark that. We just had a conversation about children's ministry. Uh, We would like you to volunteer freely. Freely you have received, now freely give. When I first became the pastor of the little church that was way back in 1998, I can't believe it was 23 years ago. I'm only, I started when I was 12, so (laughs) just kidding. But uh, I remember a woman uh, in the church, you know, this is a little church and I was the new pastor and so there was a, they had kind of an evening thing and she had a list of questions for me and I'm talking about a list of questions, but she asked me a question. She said, would you do this for free if nobody was paying you? And I wanted to say, lady, you're barely paying me anything. (laughs) But I didn't say that. I just thought it. But my answer was, of course I would do this. I would do it for nothing. You know, there's a line in the field of dreams where Shoeless Joe Jackson says this famous line, not theologically correct, but he says, I would have played this game for nothing. I would have done it for nothing. Because he loved it. And it is nice to be compensated, no doubt, for ministry. It's nice to be able to not have to, you know, go out and work another job, which I did do for the first 18 months as a senior pastor. And I think that's also healthy, uh, that we don't necessarily just come out of a Bible college and, you know, make our living in ministry. But I think it's good to to work another job and, and to really test why you are in ministry to begin with. But... Thy people, in the day of thy power, they will volunteer freely. They, you know, it is, it's my delight to do thy will, O oh God. Your commandments are not burdensome to me. And sometimes people say, isn't it hard to be a Christian? Isn't it a tough existence? No, it's actually the best existence. His loving kindness is better than life. Is it hard sometimes? Sure. But is it the joy of my heart? Has it become the most important thing in my life? Of course, because to know the God who made you is what life's really all about. And sadly, some people will live and die and never know that. But you know it. The ESV says your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments from the womb of the morning the dew of your youth will be yours. Now, it's quite possible, and this is open to some interpretation, that verse 3 is pointing to the time when the day of the Lord commences and the Lord is pouring out his wrath, but before he pours out his wrath, we're not appointed to wrath, so what will we get? What will happen before the day of the Lord? Two things. You're going to have resurrection and Rapture, right? Then judgment comes. So before the day of the Lord, wrath comes, you're going to have the church or God's people resurrected and raptured. 
And when the resurrection and rapture happens, this is what we know, and this I've often said at memorial services with great joy in my heart to share this reality, that the person that has died in the Lord will live again, and they will get a resurrected body, right? And they will recover their youth again and will be as the dew of the morning. What does that mean, the dew of the morning? What are you talking about? Well, if you wake up and uh, you go outside and let's just say it's been a kind of, you know, not, it's not the heat of the summer and you see dew on the grass and it kind of sparkles in the early sunlight, that's the picture. The dew of the morning, ready, jubilant, excited, vigorous. How many of you wake up that way right now? You just got joy first thing in the morning. You don't need no coffee. You don't need no stinking coffee. You just wake up and you're ready to roll. Anybody got anybody like that in your life? Are you that way? Do you, does it annoy your family? Everybody's annoyed by <laughs> Okay, we won't go there. But now, there was a time that I used to wake up that way. Now it's direct to coffee injections. I don't even drink it. Orally. <laughs> I remember we'd be at a Bible study at six in the morning, and I'd look at the group of guys around there, and I'd say, Well, it's a good thing there's a resurrection coming because you got drool on your mouth. It's just ugly. <laughs> but there's a beauty here that we are going to rise, and when we do, in the day of his power, day of the Lord, if you will, we'll be dressed in holy array. That has the idea of dressed in white or ready to worship. And the youth, uh, from the womb of the dawn, thy youth are to thee as the dew. Um, I think the implication of the language is that our, our youth is going to be renewed and we're never going to die again. Why do we die? Because the wages of sin is death. But when it's all remade, when the earth gets its makeover, when you get a new body, there's no more of that. Can you imagine? Just think for a moment. Think of people that you've lost in the Lord that you're going to see again in their prime as the dew of the morning, if you will. Uh, having been resurrected in a glorified body, no longer the curse, no more tears, no more sorrow, no more pain, no more death. The former things have been wiped away. They are no more. This is the picture of Psalm 110, all because of what the Lord has done for us. And some would argue, like Spurgeon, that we even have a picture of spiritual regeneration here because we can live this way even while we wait for future events. We can have the invigoration and the enthusiasm of who we are in Christ, amen, because we're seated with Christ in heavenly places Right now, Ephesians chapter 2. So right now we can have that enthusiasm or that expectation of what is ahead. And the power of the Holy Spirit helps us with that. And this links to this next idea. And I think most scholars see verse 4 as the center of the psalm, the key. The Lord has sworn, and you're going to see that in your Bibles as you study the Bible, there's only a few times where the Lord makes an oath or swears, because he can swear by nobody greater, but he's done this a few times. He did it with Abraham swearing about the, the oath of the promises, that he, will, he would be good to his promises. And here, he swears on something else. The Lord has sworn, that's Yahweh, is sworn and will not change his mind, 
that thou art a priest, and he continues to have this dialogue now with this second person of the Trinity, the Son. Thou art a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. Now, let me just explain, and I can't get into all the scriptures here, but I think for most of you, this is some review. So this, this mysterious Melchizedek appears in Genesis 14. This is really his only Old Testament appearance. And Abraham has just come off a battle, and he's rescued Lot, and he has um, the king of Sodom trying to negotiate with him, and the king of Salem shows up, this Melchizedek. Salem is the idea of the king of peace. Um, And he brings him bread and wine, and, and Abraham gives offerings to him, and there's and Melchizedek blesses him. And so this Melchizedek priesthood is interesting because remember that there was only one line for priests in the Old Testament. It came from Aaron, who was Moses' brother, and we're going to learn more about him in the book of Exodus. And from him, really, you have the line of Aaron or the Levitical line, and they were the priests. But Jesus is not from that priestly line. What line does he come from? He's the line of the tribe of what? Judah, which means praise. But that's not the priestly line. So how could Jesus be a high priest, and that's what he's called, if he doesn't come from the Aaronic or Levitical line? Well, he comes from a different order of priests, from this mysterious one called Melchizedek, who appears on the scene Blesses Abraham. Abraham pays ties to him, if you will. And then he's like gone. And the question is, what is the link to this Messiah who's given this priestly order of Melchizedek? Now, I want to take you to the book of Hebrews one more time. Told you we're going to turn a little bit tonight. I want to show you, and I can only kind of just touch on the fringes of this tonight, but... For some of you, you've gotten into this before, but I want you to see now what it says about Jesus, and it begins, the writer of Hebrews begins to touch on his Melchizedek priesthood in Hebrews 5. Here's what it says. It says, just as he says also in another passage, 5, 6 of Hebrews, thou art a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. Now that's Psalm 110 verse 4. In the days of his flesh, now speaking of Jesus, he offered up both prayers and supplications with loud crying and tears. Remember, Jesus was fully human and is still fully human today and fully God. To the one able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his piety. Hebrews 5.8. Although he was a son or the son, he learned obedience, interesting, from the things which he suffered. Note that, Bible students. If Jesus did, then I think the same is true for us. And having been made perfect, he became to all those who obey him the source of eternal salvation. Being designated by God, you can think of Psalm 110, as a high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. Concerning him, we have much to say, and it's hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you have need again for someone to teach you the elementary principles of the oracles of God. You've come to need milk and not solid food. For everyone who partakes only of milk is not accustomed to the word of righteousness, for he is a babe. 
but solid food is for the mature who because of practice have their senses trained to discern good and evil. If you're wondering what's the problem with some believers in the church today, there you have it. They live on milk. They go to places that only serve up milk. They have no patience for any kind of in-depth study of the word of God, and we suffer for it. And we, we see discernment at an all-time low often in the church, and we're like, what's going on? Why do God's people not see this? Why can't they see and discern this teaching from that and separate the wheat from the chaff and so forth? And the honest truth is that a lot of people don't care to go deep. If you go uh, after God swore his promises uh, to Abraham in Genesis 22, which is what Hebrews 6 deals with, just to stick on this idea of Melchizedek, it says, this hope, look at 619 of Hebrews, we have as an anchor of the soul, that's our men's uh, conference theme, a hope both sure and steadfast and one which enters within the veil where Jesus has entered, notice, as a forerunner for us, having become a high priest forever, according to what order? There it is, the order of Melchizedek. Now notice that Jesus' Melchizedek high priestly ministry to us today is as a forerunner. That is, he's gone into heaven and he has blazed the trail for us to follow him. That's what a forerunner is. They run before another group. And he tears down the veil, if you will, into the Holy of Holies. And he ministers to us. He's a priest forever ministering uh, for us. And if you go to Hebrews 7, just to develop this a little bit further. And this 15 is clearer still. If another priest arises according to the likeness of Melchizedek, who's become such not on the basis of law, of physical requirement, but according to the power of an indestructible life. For it is witnessed of him, 717 of Hebrews, thou art a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. You can see how many times Psalm 110 is mentioned. For on the one hand, there's a setting aside of a former commandment because of its weakness and uselessness, for the law made nothing perfect. And on the other hand, there is a bringing in of a better hope through which we, church, draw near to God. And inasmuch as it was not without an oath, for they indeed became priests without an oath, but he, Jesus, with an oath, he's superior to all the other priests, through the one who said to him, the Lord has sworn, will not change his mind, thou art a priest forever. Again, Psalm 110, verse four. So much the more also Jesus has become the guarantee of a better covenant. And the former priests, on the one hand, existed in greater numbers because they were prevented by death from continuing. But he, Jesus, on the other hand, because he abides forever, holds his priesthood, what? Permanently. Hence, also, he is able to save forever because he can't die. He has an indestructible life. By the way, the language of Hebrews 7 means also he cannot pass this priesthood to another. Nobody else has it. No other religious group has it. I don't care what they tell you. I don't care what they say in their documentation, what they tell you at their door. 
and I, I'm not trying to be mean or anything, I'm just giving you scripture here. The Mormon church does not have the Melchizedek uh, priesthood. You know why? It cannot be transferred. It is Jesus's and Jesus's alone. And since he has an indestructible life, he doesn't have to transfer it to anybody. There doesn't need to be another high priest because Jesus is never going to die. Can I get a witness? It's a good time for an amen, a hallelujah right there. You don't need another high priest to take over for the one previous to because there isn't going to be another one because Jesus lives on forever. He has opened the doors of heaven to his people, for his people, and he lives and forever he is uh, defending us. He's our advocate on high. Amen? You have a high priest who intercedes for you. He's the king. He's on your side. Praise the Lord. Oh my goodness, it's 826. You know, Alex did me a favor last week because he preached over an hour. So, pass the peanuts. No, I'm just kidding. We're almost done. Go back to Psalm 110. So, you can see the power, the beauty of the Messianic Psalm, he's the king, he's God, he's second person of the Holy Trinity, he's your high priest, he's your everything, he's the king priest. And the Lord is at thy right hand, verse five, Psalm 110, that's his position, honor, glory. He will shatter kings in the day of his wrath, again, the day of the Lord. He will judge among the nations, he will fill them with corpses, he will shatter the chief men, he is king of kings and lord of lords, so nobody's going to stand against him. Over a broad country, he will drink from the brook by the wayside. Therefore, he will lift up his head. Psalm 3 says he's the one that lifts my head. But the lifting up of head here, I think, is the, the idea of it's finished. You know, you can lift up your head and the battle is over. It has the idea of proud in the good sense, right? That he's lifting up his head in victory. Father, thank you for Psalm 110, and there's much more that we could say tonight, but our time is limited, and probably, maybe for most of us, that's about all we could take tonight. Uh, it's so good, so rich, so deep, so beautiful to know who Jesus is, that he is our Lord. Uh, God the Father calls God the Son in Hebrews 1, God. He was there face-to-face -face with the Father and the Holy Spirit. The one who became that baby in Bethlehem is king forever. Is the one who's at the right hand of the Father. The one who left the glories of heaven to come down and be our intercessor, to be our high priest, to blaze the trail, to return to heaven in the ascension, to be the forerunner of his people so that he would prepare a place for us. To make the payment for our sins so we could be there, to purify us so that we could stand before a holy God in the righteousness of Christ. To know that he's king forever, high priest forever. He has the power of an indestructible life. And he says, because I live, you will live. And those who overcome, he even says, you're gonna sit down on my throne as I overcame and sat down on my father's throne. These things are so amazing, so high, so incredible, that you would include us, Lord, in your plan. And your people are pictured in verse three as dressed in holy array, willingly and freely giving their lives in your service. What else could we do? It seems so little. We are an unworthy slave if we only do that which is required of us, knowing who you are and what you've done for us. And yet you tell us, 
We will inherit the kingdom. You will put us in charge of things that belong to you all because of your grace and all because you've given us gifts that we could employ in your holy service. Oh, God, let us be in awe of who you are and what you've done for your people. Let us bow before you in worship. Let us be in awe of your person and your nature and how you condescended to save us. Let us look to the future also in a day when the curse will be reversed, it will be no more, and we will be new again. Thank you, Father. Thank you for the hope that the gospel gives us. Jesus, you are our hope. If you don't have that hope tonight, I pray you'd seek it out. I pray that you'd ask Jesus to save you. Believe what the Bible says about him. Trust in him. Repent of your sin. If you're backslidden, get back to where you need to be. Get back in the game. Serve him in holy array. And if you're a Christian and you have been fighting the good fight, may you be encouraged by these words. May they uh, fill you with hope and refreshment. In Jesus' name.